Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 124. On today's show, we talk about obsidian flakes in Lake Huron, a wheelbark cemetery in Poland, and a computer program sorting pottery in the Southwest. Let's dig a little deeper. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show. Rachel, how's it going? Good. So, yet once again, we have birds in the background. And they're not even in the room <laughs> we we're in. too. I know. They're really, really loud out there. <laughs> yeah. There's like a tree right outside the window and they're just, you know. I know. Singing their songs. <laughs> I know. We're in like a two-bedroom, two-room condo or something or other. Once once a year kind of thing for us. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, the window, the doors open in the other room and I can hear those birds like they're right here. I don't know if the audience can hear those, but totally crazy. Anyway, speaking of flight risks, we're going to talk about <laughs> obsidian. That's, I don't think that's launching its way across the continent <laughs> yeah. like a bird in flight. <laughs> Wow, that's not how I interpreted this article, but hey, (laughs) to each his own. So the name of this article is Central Oregon Obsidian from a Submerged Early Holocene Archaeological Site Beneath Lake Huron. So this was published in the PLOS One Journal, and it was just recently published, I think just uh, May 19th or something like that, just a few days ago. And it really caught my eye when I was trying to find cool, interesting topics for us because we have mostly worked out here on the West Coast in Nevada and some in California. And obsidian is common on the landscape here. Yeah. It, I mean, it's cool and interesting to see it, but it's very common and we don't think anything of it. But mm-hmm. this is very different and very interesting because there is no natural obsidian that far east. So it was very unusual for them to find this and then they did some more research to figure out where it came from and what was going on there. So this article is really neat. Why isn't there obsidian on the East Coast? Oh, I don't know. Geologically speaking, yeah. I mean, it's volcanic, volcanically formed. So I suppose it would be the lack of mountains. Well, there are mountains. They're just really, really old mountains. They're, yeah. they're way older than the mountains we have here. The big jagged mountains that we have in the West, like the yeah. Rockies and the Sierras. Uh-huh. And, you know, the Pacific coast of this continent is part of what's called the Ring of Fire. Uh, that mm-hmm. goes all the way over Japan and all the way around. That's right. what Hawaii's formed from, you know, the yeah. volcanoes in Alaska, everything. So volcanoes spit out obsidian like it's their job. Right. And that's where you get it. And then it dry, it hardens as glass, mm-hmm. basically, because it's essentially, you know, sand-like material. It's silica-based. No, it's not silica-based. Yeah, I think it is. I think you're right, because yeah. sand yeah. is, yeah. Because it, it basically does turn into glass. Yeah, so, yeah. Anyway... There probably is obsidian on the East Coast, but it's, you know, a thousand feet underground. Oh, true. You know? Yeah. I yeah. mean, those volcanoes, those mountain ranges, I don't know if they were volcanically formed, but like the Appalachians, the Adirondacks, all those mountains over there, but they're so old and worn down and small and they're just, yeah. there's nothing left of them anymore. But I don't know how they were found. Were they just uplift or were they volcanically created like a lot of the mountains over here? I'm not really sure. Yeah. I'm not really sure either. But I would speculate that they were not volcanically formed just because of the lack of obsidian. You'd find some somewhere. You would think, right? A cut from a river or something would have some. Well, with uplift too, it would, even if it was way low, it would be brought up high. So yeah, we need a geologist right now to like set us straight. But (laughs) all all I know is we still have active volcanoes over here on this coast. Yes. And we have volcanoes that were active not that long ago. And we have obsidian that 
you know, dates back a long ways, but also dates back to not too far away either. Yeah. Right. So, geologically speaking. Geologically yes. speaking. Yeah. Either way, it's in abundance. We've been to a place called Glass Mountain. Yeah. In Northern yeah. California. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's called Glass Mountain because it's literally a mountain of obsidian. Yeah. You know, and the, the BLM, I think, owns it. And we know people that have gone there and collected obsidian as a source. And I think it's something like they limit you to like 50 pounds a day or something. Yeah. And there's still there's plenty. Because there's so much of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it comes in all kinds of colors and banding. Yeah. And all, there's there's so many different things, which actually will come into play with this article because because the the obsidians can look so different and there's also a chemical difference going on. Mm -hmm. They can test it to figure out where it comes from and they do that for this article. But before we get there, just a quick thing about obsidian The like we said, it's on the West coast. They do have some sources that are as far East as like South Dakota, Wyoming ish area, but that's about as far East as, as source material goes. So the fact that they found these flakes in an archeological site, beneath Lake Huron tells you that they got there by people rather than by natural processes. So that's, and also they're flakes. So they're, you know, man-made, but you know, the reason that they're there is because people brought them there, which is Mm -hmm. what grabbed my attention. I thought that was really cool to see that movement of, of a really special material across the country like that. And if you're wondering about the archaeological site being submerged beneath Lake Huron, <laughs> yeah. they didn't actually put a lot about that in the article because that wasn't really the main focus. But I guess the lake level was much lower in the Holocene time period. So there's archaeological sites underneath a lot of Lake Huron, like all yeah. around the edges that were exposed back then. So that's that's why. And I guess they must have done some kind of underwater archaeology to, mm-hmm. to get down there and, and excavate this stuff, which to see that methodology would be really cool too, but they don't really go into it much in this article. Yeah, I don't know the cycle very much, but I'm pretty sure the Great Lakes themselves were, etched, were carved out by glaciers, but not yeah. just the last glacial maximum. I mean, glaciers advance and recede every, I think it's 25,000 years or something like that, mm-hmm. give or take. And the last receding, recedence, receding, I don't know. The last retreat, <laughs> know, glacial retreat. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. The last retreat happened, you know, in the last 10 to 15,000 years. Yeah. And so as those glaciers were retreating, I mean, they held all the water. Right. It yeah. was frozen. They held all the water. So they would have pulled back on what would have already have been carved out, but now more carved out by these glaciers, the Great Lakes and a bunch of other stuff. This is why Minnesota has 10,000 lakes. Right. There's a bunch of just, you know, yeah. it's crazy. Yep. And then as it the, temp- the earth warmed, they would have melted and, and basically filled in all the lower spots. Mm-hmm. But before then, people were like, hey, this looks like a good place to be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It sounds like there's a lot of archaeological activity mm-hmm. there. So it must have been a, a really great fertile place to, to be. Well, so. And that makes sense because the entire Midwest where all of our food is grown, mm-hmm. there's a lot of lust there, L-O-E-S-S, which is the winds and stuff that oh, blows sure. off the front of glaciers and things. Yeah. And it's just incredibly fertile soil. Yeah. So. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, so that's how they, or that's why they were looking there. It's because they you know, knew that there was a lot of archaeological sites underneath the lake and they recovered two obsidian flakes and those two flakes, they have conclusively dated them to about 9,000 years before present. And they are also conclusively sourced to wagon tire obsidian in central Oregon, which is a distance of over 4,000 kilometers away. And also it's the, this makes it the furthest east occurrence of obsidian in the United States. So that's pretty cool. I have a problem with wagon tire obsidian. <laughs> Wagons didn't have tires. <laughs> so. Well, then you need to go talk to the people in Oregon who named their source mountains. <laughs> wagon tire does not make any sense. <laughs> a little bit more about the flakes themselves that they found. <laughs> They're the, the larger of the two. It's mostly complete. It was roughly triangular and it they speculate it's probably a biface thinning flake and it's made from a black and translucent material. So let's explain biface thinning flake for the audience. Oh quick, yes. Real quick. So Please biface do. just means if you picture an arrowhead uh-huh. for, and we call them projectile points in the archeological world because you never arrowhead implies it was fired on an arrow, but it could have been a dart. It could have been a spear. Right. It could have been a number of things, right? Well, really those three things, but variations on those three. Yeah. And they can range in size and shape right. and everything. So arrowhead doesn't really work for all of them. No. So when we want to be generic, we say projectile point and exactly. we just kind of always say projectile point. Mm-hmm. 
And depending on where you're at, we will abbreviate that PPT, projectile point, or some... Point. Yeah, or some people say um, PPK, projectile point slash knife. Oh. Because in some areas, some of the bigger points were possibly used as, as knife blades, stuff like that. So right. anyway, biface just means it was worked on both sides. There were flakes off of both sides because there are unifacial tools mm-hmm. that are just like a big flake. And then they took a bunch of stuff off one side to shape it or get a just, sharp edge. And, yeah, yeah. And they just kind of left it. Yeah. Right. But most things are bifacially worked. So a biface by calling it a biface and not a projectile point, we're kind of, I mean, a projectile point is inherently bifacial, but by calling it a biface, we usually mean it's an earlier stage mm-hmm. and unformed. Yeah. So it didn't have a usable shape. It had a preformed shape kind right, of thing. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't like meant to be a specific thing yet, but they were potentially yeah. working it, it was towards a, that. It was so. a canvas waiting to be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Waiting to be sculpted. Yep. So the second flake that they found was a much smaller piece. And it's a very thin, very translucent obsidian. It's so small that it's likely a percussion flake. Now, a percussion flake is, it. if you can imagine, you need to resharpen the edge of the projectile point or the spear or whatever it is that you're trying to sharpen, you might take a tiny little flake off the edge just to help sharpen that edge. And mm-hmm. that's what they think that this second flake is. So those are the two they found. And they did x-ray fluorescence XRF analysis and they sourced it to central organ. They knew for sure it was kind of, it came from central organ, but they didn't know exactly where. And this is what I thought was really cool because I hadn't heard of this dating technique or this sourcing technique, but neutron activation analysis, NAA, that's where they test for additional elements that goes beyond what X-ray fluorescence does. And one of those elements is barium and barium there were three sources in Oregon that they thought it could be from. And the barium, um, um, the amount of barium at Wagon Tire perfectly matched the barium in the flakes that they found. And it was significantly different from the other source options. So that's how they were able to narrow it down to that one exactly, which I thought was really neat. What did Native Americans do with their projectile points if they didn't want their enemies to find them? <laughs> I bury him. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> You're so dumb. Hey, we did find a cache of projectile points one time. You remember that? In the North Carolina? That, the one that I found? Yeah. With my shovel? No, there was definitely we. We happened. That was my unit. I know, but we. Come uh, on. We worked on the same project. <laughs> Come anyway, on. we can anyway. talk about that because it's pretty cool. Yeah, it was cool. No, so both XRF and neutron activation analysis, what they do is they essentially stimulate the elements or the the electrons, for lack of a better way to say it, around the atoms that make these elements. Mm-hmm. And they, like in X-ray fluores- fluorescence, it actually fluoresces X-rays mm-hmm. and, and emits X-rays. And then you, you can read that. It's like when you put a something into a flame and it has a color. You can tell what elements are in it. This oh, is how we know yeah, yeah. what distant stars and planets are made of mm-hmm. because we use a spectrometer to basically, you know, look in a really tiny dot in the sky and say, oh, it must be made of this. Right. Because it's true. Yeah. So anyway, both of those are designed. That's how they can tell the chemical fingerprint of it because nothing in the ground is the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, all volcanoes might look the same when they're spewing hot lava, but that lava is very different from other hot lava. Yeah. It's all made up of yeah. a very distinct set of elements basically yeah because you can break this stuff down with the hotness of the lava Mm -hmm. but the elements are still there yeah like the atoms are still there Mm -hmm. and then when it hardens you can still detect these things yeah so that's pretty cool yeah it was really interesting to me because we have worked on some projects where they they were testing like the the hydration sourcing which Mm -hmm. i think is a slightly different way of doing a similar thing right well hydration isn't sourcing hydration is age so, oh, for eight. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So obsidian hydration. This is where I was going to ask you because you read this article about the dating because mm-hmm. the, they wouldn't have used these other two things for the dating. They would have used obsidian hydration for the dating, which is for as far as I know, the only way you can date obsidian. But essentially obsidian absorbs moisture from the air and develops this rind around the edge. And that's why when you see a piece of, if you've ever seen a piece of obsidian in the raw, it's very dull mm-hmm. because the whole outside of it is a weathered rind. Yeah. Now, when you, when you cut it up, when you smash you it, it open, and then you yeah. take flakes off of something, 
you could, they could probably even tell, oh, this would be really cool because obsidian hydration dating is really hard to do because you need to know what the environment is that the obsidian lived in because mm-hmm. the hydration rates, the rate at which it absorbs moisture is different here in the Great Basin mm-hmm. where there's no moisture versus Washington State where there's a ton of moisture. Right. So the, uh, the hydration rate is going to be massively different in different areas. So what I'd want to know, they found two flakes. Now these flakes themselves, it'd be great if we had the tool. Because if you had yeah. the tool and then you had the flakes, you could see different rates of hydration mm-hmm. because if the tool started somewhere else and then the flakes were taken off somewhere else, you know, that'd be one thing. But so if they, if they dated the flakes to about 9,000 BP, it's, it would be interesting to see what the tool would date to. It's basically the question. Yeah. I don't know. They definitely didn't find the tool. They say in the article specifically that yes, this material is exotic, but they want to point out that it was a relatively routine activity and that they don't think that it was part of any, anything special or anything ritual. And they definitely don't have the point that the flakes are taken off of. So they don't really know anything more than the, anything other than the fact that the obsidian got there somehow. Right. <laughs> that's, that's all they really know. They, and it does seem like it was probably like a, like there's a social network of different na- bands of native Americans who helped to, pass this thing across the country too. It wasn't like one person from the upper Midwest went out to Oregon, got a bunch of, of obsidian and then went back. It was probably a bit passed from group to group to group until it finally ended up where it was. Yeah. And at some point when it passed from the West from Oregon, I mean, Oregon is as far West as you can possibly get. So Mm -hmm. when it passed from there and started getting into places that were, where obsidian was more exotic, Mm -hmm. It could have been seen as uh, almost currency, you know, traded yeah. as, as something valuable and prized. Mm-hmm. But then who was the guy that was like, oh, man, whatever this, I'm just going to sharpen it and then I'll need <laughs> to use it. So Yeah, but like you have to if it's dull and it's not doing its job anymore. If it was a knife or something, for example, something a, a tool that would have been used repetitively rather than just a single time. You yeah, got to sharpen it. But the thing about obsidian is it's difficult to use repetitively unless it's big because obsidian is I mean, you can't even say razor thin because it's thinner than a razor. Mm-hmm. It's uh, up to, what do they say, like one electron wide or something like that, or one micron or something like that. I don't know, the thickness don't of know. a human hair. It's super crazy sharp. Yeah, yeah. Right? But it dulls really fast because of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, just imagine cutting something with glass. Sure, it cuts your skin real easy, but these guys are cutting hides. They're cutting, they're using it to, to you know, spear into animals or whatever size of the tool was. Mm-hmm. It breaks easy. I mean, it just... It doesn't last long. Well, so then a potential reason why they would have been flaking such a valuable resource is maybe it was a larger tool and they used it and it broke and they were Mm -hmm. trying to take the broken pieces and turn them into something else usable. You know, that would be a reason for for taking flakes off of something Mm -hmm. that you otherwise wouldn't want to destroy. So just speculation, though, of course, it's always speculation with archaeology. (laughs) Yeah, it shows the survival aspect of living in that area, too, because such a material you would think would be a highly exotic in the Lake Huron area. And I mean, if it's what you got and there's an animal there, you got to kill. It's what you've got. You got to eat, right? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway. I would have hated to be the person who was like taking the flakes off of that by face though. Cause I, I've only tried to nap obsidian one time mm-hmm. and it was challenging, <laughs> like so challenging. Yeah. And I made the wonkiest weirdly shaped by face. If you can even call it by face. Cause I think I only got like maybe one or two flakes off of one of the sides. <laughs> so like well, it's hard. And assuming this was traded for again, that's a really good point because how would the person who took these flakes off in Lake Huron even known how to do that? Now it would have been similar techniques to like chert and stuff yeah. like that, but that's such a more, a much more resilient material. You can put a lot more pressure on it mm-hmm. before you crack it in half. So I'm guessing they didn't find the tool cause it was 40 feet away. <laughs> cause the guy was like, damn it. And it just like chucked yeah. it. Yeah. So probably. Anyway. So who knows though? That's, that's yeah. interesting to think about. Yeah. All right. Well, that's way too much time on this article. So we're going to take a break and head on to segment two. However, go over to the APN website, arcpodnet.com. We've revised our newsletter. And if you've ever been to the website, you know, 
I'll tell you what, it kind of gets me sometimes because I forget. But if you scroll up just a little ways on any page, you get a pop up after a little while that says uh, join our newsletter. So just type your email address in there and you will get the next one. Mondays, we're sending out news articles like this. And uh, Fridays, we're sending out basically a list with links to the podcast that released the last seven days. So go check that out. We'll be back in segment two. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code TAS. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Welcome back to episode 124 of the Archaeology Show. And we are moving on to a new topic, other side of the world. We're going to Europe. And we're going to talk about a culture I'd never heard of before. And I'm going to say it, and I might be wrong. <laughs> this would be the Wilbark culture or Wildbark. Where are they from? They are, it's it's a German town. Wildbark. So maybe. Actually, it's in Poland. Oh, well. Yeah, maybe. Well, anyway. Somewhere. Yeah. So it's spelled W-I-E-L-B-A-R-K. And the reason that they are making the news is there's an, in an article published in antiquity about this culture, it's called the Goths, the Wheelbark culture and over 100 years of research on the eponymous site. And they just, this article is really just like an overview of who they are, where they are and why they're so important. And it caught my eye partly because it's a gigantic cemetery, like one of the biggest cemeteries in this time period, in this place in Europe, number one. And number two, I just had never heard of it. And like, usually you hear about these, these larger cultures, you have heard of them at some point, but I hadn't. And I thought that was neat. So mm-hmm. the cemetery is located near the town of Malbork. And then there's a small village called Wheelbark, which is where the name comes from in Northern Poland. Please excuse all my pronunciations. <laughs> That's the last time I'm going to say that. <laughs> And this culture is associated with the area from the southern coast of the Baltic Sea to the western part of Ukraine during the period between the beginning of the Roman period around the first century AD and then what they call the migration period, which is the fifth century AD. And that's when the Goths migrated into this part of Europe. So we have this sort of like hole in between Romans and Goth and it's well, we don't know a lot about them, but we have this cemetery full of people. So <laughs> there's that. <laughs> so somehow they all died. A lot of people died in 500 years. <laughs> Go figure. Like, welcome it happens. to any period in history. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to always. <laughs> but cemetery, that's interesting, right? Yeah. So there's more than 2000 burials there. And Jeez. like I said, it spans five centuries and it's actually not like a huge area either. And they do have evidence that some of the earlier burials were basically chucked out of the way later on to make room for the later burials. So just a lot of burial activity going on in this cemetery over those 500 years that it was used. So some of the earlier burials were pre-Roman and they are cremations that were in an urn that are buried in a pit. And a lot of those burials also had weapons with them. Then as we move forward in time, the cemetery was used 
like most intensely actually used during this Roman period from the third, third and fourth centuries. And those are primarily inhumations and there's almost no weapons with these burials either. And interestingly, there's a kind of a rise in female grave goods. They get more complex and there's just more of them. And they're clearly like just, I don't know. They're rise in female grave goods. Yeah. Like, 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 gra- like grave goods associated with women. Yeah. Just not even, they, they don't even say specifically what, just more, just more of them and more things. Whereas before there wasn't necessarily any grave goods with female burials. Hmm. So, so yeah. Okay. Interestingly, a large proportion of the vessels in the graves appear to be made specifically as cremation urns. Hmm. And that's because they would not have retained liquid had they had actual liquid in them. So they made these urns specifically for cremation or to not hold liquid. So it wasn't like a repurposing of those vessels, which I thought was kind of neat too. So they were urns with like holes in them? Uh, Not necessarily holes, but they were just not impermeable. Like like fired to the point where they were... Exactly. Yeah. 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 So I thought that was neat too. Maybe they were just garbage at making pottery. Well, they made pottery to put everyday items in. Like they have pottery that yeah. would have been used for normal liquids and whatever. It's a weird thing to say that the vessels that the cremations were held in could not have held liquid. Like yeah. why would you, why would that be your metric as a scientist against pottery? You know, I think it's just, they noticed it when they were, uh, when they were doing the analysis of the different urns that they were buried urns, in. Those urns also weren't made to hold like uh, Swedish fish <laughs> or apples. <laughs> it's just a weird thing to say. You know what I mean? Well, it's yeah. not, not really though, because an urn is meant to hold liquid. If it's not for cremation, if it's not for burial purposes, what do you do with an urn? You put things in it. Yeah. Often liquid. And in this case, they noted that the urns could not have held liquid. So therefore they were made specifically for burial purposes, which means mm. that they clearly had a very specific burial practice going on. And it just, you're yeah. just assigning more importance to like death ritual and death yeah. stuff. <laughs> I just wonder, I, I didn't, you know, obviously they don't go deep into this, but I would wonder, I mean, cremations is inherently a dried good. So yeah, you could you hold other dry goods in these kinds of vessels? I'm just wondering how they know they were made specifically for burials. You it's know, just an assumption. It's just, yeah. Yeah. They just know mm-hmm. that they couldn't have hold liquid. So yeah. I guess they probably have seen all the pottery from the area outside of the cemetery. Sure. And they would know. So other than that, the cemetery is overlooking the valley and they noted that the ground that the cemetery is on is relatively infertile as compared with the surrounding area. And it also, like I said, is overlooking the valley. So they, it seems as though this area was chosen specifically for cemetery purposes, partly because it's a nice spot overlooking a nice area, but also Mm. because they couldn't really use that land for growing things. So it was like, well, go ahead and use it to bury people in. Why not? I know it's fertile now. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Makes me wonder too. I I actually, I mean, I, you hear of, I guess, mass burials, Mm -hmm. but calling something a cemetery. I wonder what the organization was of this. Was there any pictures in the article? I don't remember seeing that. Not really. There's a couple pictures of the burials themselves, but not like of the layout of the cemetery. But I think it's the constant use where they had, 500 years of use by, by what appears to be like the mm-hmm. same group of people sure. or kind of the same group of people. Cause then, you know, the Romans came in and so there was the Roman influence going on and then later on, and this is part of what they were looking at is they're wanting to see what the relationship of these people was with the Romans who kind of migrated in from the South and then left once the Romans Roman empire fell and then from the North. And I think did the Goths come from Scandinavia maybe? Uh, I don't know originally, but I know that they were more destructive when they came into a place, whereas the yeah. Romans were more inclusive. They like came in and set up a government and said, Hey, let's be friends. But we're your rulers now. Yeah, friends, if you... I mean, assuming <laughs> assuming it was an area they didn't have to conquer. Yeah. You know, they did it just expand, though. And that's, uh, that's one thing I do remember reading a lot was that Romans absorbed cultures. Yeah. And, and integrated cultures. Yeah. Rather than it, completely destroyed it cultures. It does appear that that is what was going on here yeah. because you see this strong Roman influence and then the 
the whole like wheelbark culture itself seems to kind of die out by the time the goths were moving into that area so maybe mm-hmm. they were conquered at that point it's unclear and it was interesting too they noted that all there's weapons with the earlier burials and then you don't see the weapons with the later on hmm. burials as if making war and knowing how to fight were less valued in the society later on perhaps or the people buried there weren't allowed to have weapons by their overlords oh, yeah that's possible too yeah. the roman overlords maybe yeah. and then they were just sitting ducks for the goss when the goss moved in yeah who knows i don't know but it just is an interesting large cemetery that mm-hmm. is for a group of people that are not well studied or well known right so yeah All right. Well, that was sort of an overview of the Wheelbark Cemetery in Poland. And now we're going to move on to some pottery sorting and identification in the United States. Speaking of overlords, computers are going to take over everything. Back in a minute. Definitely. Yeah. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our tea Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 124. And I actually almost screwed up that intro because I almost said the Archaeotech podcast because (laughs) I literally just interviewed one of the researchers on this next article that we're going to talk about. And the name of the article is Archaeologists Teach Computers to Sort Ancient Pottery, and it's from Heritage Daily. We'll link to that. And if we can find it, we might try to link to the article in the Journal of Archaeological Science where it was originally published. But Leszek Pavlovich, one of the researchers at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff, Arizona, is actually, I'm friends with him on Facebook. I've never actually met him, but I'm (laughs) friends with him on Facebook. And so I contacted him and we did a full interview for the Archaeotech podcast. So head over to arcpodnet.com forward slash Archaeotech if you're really interested in some of the technical aspects of what they did. We thought about interviewing him for this show, but I mean, that it really is way too technical. This is Mm -hmm. more of a general audience type of show. And we really got into the weeds on some of the computer algorithms and stuff like that over there on the uh, architect podcast. Yeah. So if you want to hear Chris's interview with one of the authors of the article, right. Check out the, yeah. Yeah. So if you're listening to this in real time, as we release it, it's going to be later this week on Thursday. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Uh, I don't remember what episode number it is, but yeah. So check that out because it's going to be pretty cool. Anyway, Leszek is an interesting guy because, yeah, sure, he's adjunct faculty at the Department of Anthropology, but he started out, he got a degree in engineering from MIT Oh, and he worked with semiconductors for like 10 years. Uh, He's done a bunch of other things and really just kind of didn't like that stuff anymore. And, and started, he, he ended up working in like computer programming for a CRM firm. And then he said, one day they asked me cause they needed some help. They was like, can you walk in a straight line and see stuff? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> and so he just kind of fell into CRM and he worked for that company for like 10 years. Oh. And now he's a professor. I don't know if he's a professor. He's, he's in the department of anthropology, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure what his pedigree is as far as anthropology degrees go. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, he's an amazingly brilliant guy and in fact was on Jeopardy uh, for a couple of days. Right. Yeah. 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 So yeah. anyway, he's really interested in 
basically getting computers to do things for us, for mm-hmm. lack of a better way to say that. One of the big problems with pottery in the Southwest is that it's really hard to identify which culture and when a, a certain sherd was made. And yeah. that's what a piece of pottery There's is called. lots of different styles. Yeah. So it's and, hard to categorize them. Right. And the styles are all based on the design mm-hmm. that's painted on the pottery. Mm-hmm. And like one researcher could call something one thing yeah. and another could call something something else. So like, right. I think it's just sort of presented a problem for many years consistency in that data. Well, and one of the first things they looked at when they were trying to teach this, use this machine learning technique to teach a computer how to recognize these different styles was they first had to understand themselves what those styles were called. Yeah. And they pulled many, many researchers and he was like, you know, you could ask 20 people what one shirt looked like and it was about 70% agreement. Yeah. 60 to 70% agreement. And Mm -hmm. it was, it was not good. Yeah. And he said, that's one of the first problems and that's why they need some pattern recognition software Mm -hmm. out there. So they did the best they could to basically define the styles. Yeah. And then they started feeding this, what's called a convolutional neural network, which is a program he wrote. It's a concept, but he wrote the program and they started feeding it data. And basically what it does is it looks at the image and they have to clean the image up a little bit from, you know, the background, stuff like that. But it basically looks at the image and it maps all the different points that Mm -hmm. the design takes. And then it will tell you a percentage of confidence of what it thinks it is based on what it has. Mm -hmm. And if it's wrong, if it's flat out wrong and the researchers know it, they basically tell the computer it's wrong. They tell it what it really is. And then it it itself adjusts its own model and learns Mm -hmm. next time. He said, he said almost without fail next time it got it right. Oh, cool. Yeah. But the cool thing is, and and this is what we were talking about during the architect recording was sometimes you'll get one where the computer will be like, well, it's 70% confident it's this, but it's 20% confident it could be this. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, maybe that 7020 is a new type that we haven't been astute enough to notice. Oh, maybe it's one yeah. little thing and it's like we thought it was this mostly, but some of it thought some of us thought it was this, but in reality it was this whole other thing. Mm-hmm. And that he said, yeah, that's more than likely what's going on in those mm-hmm. cases where it's consistently a percentage like that, it's the computer's more than likely identifying a new unidentified style. Yeah. Yeah. And now are these styles, did he get into, um, I, I know that they used Tosayan whiteware for the study, mm-hmm. but I'm wondering how granular you get with, with identifying styles. Like, are you, are you identifying a specific style to a specific person in a specific tribe or is it like a broader range of people that use the same style like how how granular does that get he said with the right amount of data they could almost identify the potter really yeah because they're so distinct wow yeah. that's cool because the p- different people do things in different ways that's yeah. just how humans work yeah but yeah the styles were you know they, they followed a template like mm-hmm. a cultural template that they had right right and you could tell you you can tell styles i guess I didn't really know this because we've only worked in the Southwest like once. Yeah. And we were floored by the pottery that we found. But yeah. <laughs> it was uh, it was just the one time. So we're by no means Southwest pottery experts. But the styles on these things sound like they were almost like like the colors of kilts in Scotland. Right. It was like your family. Oh. You know, like this is this is what we do. This yeah, is our style. This, so, okay. So when you saw some of these sherds in another area amongst sherds that were not like it, it, it usually indicated trade. trade. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So trade or, you know, theft <laughs> could be anything, you know, whatever. <laughs> Either way, it didn't start there. Yeah. Yeah. And then also styles slightly changed through time, of course, because mm-hmm. it's like a big game of telephone. Mm-hmm. You know, you go over a few hundred years and somebody's going to do something slightly different and maybe it's going to stick. Maybe it's not. Mm-hmm. But the computer, the CNN, it's called the computer convolutional neural network. We'll figure that out. Yeah. And start telling you that. I just, Uh, I love that because, well, you definitely have had some pottery analysis. It was in the Southeast, but Mm -hmm. you've done some pottery analysis and I have done some as well. And I mean, after you see the, the same, but minutely different shirt over and over and over again, like I feel like human brain fatigue almost will cause you to start making mistakes or second guessing yourself or whatever. So knowing that they can teach a computer to learn the styles and then basically do an initial sort for you. I assume you would have to go back, go Mm -hmm. back in and like, you know, 
double check just sure. to make sure. But like to know that that initial sort and identification can happen by a computer is really, really cool. Yeah. And my thesis site in, uh, where did I do my thesis? Georgia. My <laughs> thesis site in Georgia, there were several thousand shards of pottery yeah, found. Yeah. And one of them, one of the types, there was a number of types and this site dated back, uh, what was it? I oh, it was a long time ago. I did this something like eight, 9,000 years. It was a really old site uh-huh. in Georgia. And this pottery was a type, a style called rectilinear or mm-hmm. it, it wasn't curvilinear or rectilinear. Anyway, it was a kind of a mixture of the two. Mm-hmm. And it was this style that we had very little evidence of in all of Georgia. Mm-hmm. And that's why when I was looking for a project for my thesis, that's why my advisor recommended this one because he knew that this style of pottery had been found there, but nobody had really written it up mm-hmm. or done anything with it. Yeah. So but I'll tell you what, when I was looking at it, Oh my God. Like I had a hard time telling that from, I can't remember my own thesis pottery, but I remember <laughs> another one that was very similar to it called Swift Creek. Uh-huh. And Swift Creek is all over Georgia. Yeah. It's a lot more abundant and it's also newer too, yeah. more recent. Mm-hmm. And the Swift Creek stuff, I mean, it looked, I mean, it looked really similar to what I was looking yeah. at. I'm like, you sure this is different? <laughs> but they assured me that it was, but I honestly couldn't really identify like how it was different, but mm-hmm. a computer, that's where they come in to yeah. play. A computer really can tell how it's different. Yeah. I can take the, the failings of the human mind, I yeah. guess you could say. The and biases of the human yeah, mind. Yeah. And the biases. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. take that out of the equation so that you can have data that is more consistent, but also not only that, but in order to teach a computer to identify these different potteries, all the scientists have to come together and, and have a consensus on what the types are. And I think that's almost more important than teaching the computer because otherwise scientists will never get together and and be like, yes, we agree. All of this is this. And this is this, you know, like, Mm -hmm. well, and you know, one of the things that Leszek was saying is there have been careers built on defining certain types of pottery and writing books about them Mm -hmm. and things like that. It just starts stepping on toes when you start telling them, actually, yeah. this one's not, oh, this I, one's wrong. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. So yeah. anyway, it was really cool. One th- interesting thing about this is this particular program that he made can only learn one thing. That's how it works. So this is a very narrowly defined type of where is, is what he called it. Uh-huh. Very narrowly defined. But they're looking for other data sets to start identifying other where types. Uh-huh. He, when he was originally doing research on this, people have used these to identify cars, dogs, boats. Yeah. I mean, you can drop anything in there. Yeah. And as long as you teach it, it, it can learn it. Mm-hmm. And I asked him if there was any limitations and he said, not really. I mean, you know. You just have to have the 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 base information for it to learn from, right? Exactly. Like you have to actually know what you're teaching it yeah. first. And that's one of the hard things about pottery that he also mentioned is in, in a lot of cases, like... You know, we don't really have a clearly defined set of rules for mm-hmm. what what identifies this pottery. Yeah. So we're trying to feed it into a program so it can feed it right back to us and and basically tell us whether we're wrong or we're right. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's really uh, it's really interesting. Yeah. Um, I asked him how close we were uh, as a field archaeologist. I'm asking him this question. I'm like, how close are we to having something where we can take a picture in the field, send it to your you know website, and then get an answer back while we're <laughs> sitting there and he actually hadn't thought of having it as a web-based application. They went straight to smartphone app. Oh, did they? And yeah, they're working on some stuff that's kind of plug and play smartphone apps. Not Uh like a bespoke as, as like a, I guess as like a proof of concept Mm -hmm. and maybe they could get funding for a full blown development because your full blown development of even a simple app. I mean, if you're not doing it yourself, you're looking at a hundred K easy, but uh, doing these simple plug and play type apps, he said we could be weeks away. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, again, cool. it's only for that type. Just that one type. Yeah. yeah. We yeah. don't have a machine learning program that you can just drop anything into. Right. And we're probably not going to for a really long time. Yeah. Because it would mean that you've got all these data sets from all over the place. And really what you'd have to do is you'd have to answer a questionnaire too. Like, I don't know if the machine would be smart enough to know, oh, I'm looking at this. So I'm going to look in, I'm going to look at this algorithm over mm-hmm. here and figure out what it is. You probably have to answer some questions about location yeah. and some other stuff. Got to give it the context. Basically. Yeah. To yeah. basically give it a head start. And yeah. then it could tell you what it is within that. Yeah. But all that is just a slippery slope to it's just going to figure it out. Yeah. You know, like I mentioned, I mentioned the um, 
Google image search, which has been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have a database of literally everything, but what it does have is billions, if not trillions and trillions of images with labels. Mm -hmm. So it just makes an assumption. And I was trying to find out what the name of this picture I took at the Met Museum when we were there oh, in New York yeah. City because mm-hmm. I didn't take a picture of the the display plate. So I didn't know what it was. And I was trying to remember what it was, some Japanese god. And I kept trying to type in different search terms. I probably spent 20 minutes <laughs> typing in terms. And then I remembered Google image search yeah. and I just dropped it in there. Had it in they seconds. found it right away. Right away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's really cool what computers can do and how it can help scientists. The thing that I keep coming back to, though, is that scientists got to there's got to be a consensus among scientists about what Mm. the different types are or else it's not going to work, you know, but hopefully they can. And the other thing I read about in the article that I thought was really interesting was the, the way that this might be able to help put pots back together with pot Mm. reconstruction. Because if you have like a whole bunch of sherds mixed in together and you, it, it can help with that initial sorting between you know, multiple styles so that you can then take the ones that are all the same and potentially like reconstruct them. So mm-hmm. I thought that was a cool little like spinoff technique basically yeah. from this program. They they haven't really developed that part of it out yet, I don't think, but it's just like a, a, a thought that could be done. I mean, the computer should be able to, if the computer can identify the style, it should know how that style goes back together. Yeah. And now you're now, since the computer knows what the picture looks like, well, it's all about putting a puzzle back together. Yeah. Like, could it like give you like the, almost like a coloring book image of what it should look like. And you can just like start putting the puzzle right. pieces in. <laughs> that would be so cool. Nice. Very, no, we very need neat. It, we need to tie to a 3d printer so the computer can just put the pot back together and then 3d print a replica. and oh paint it. So I, we have all the pieces to that puzzle. Yeah. Yeah. It's just doing it. And also like, why? I mean, why not? Because <laughs> yeah. so you can visualize the pot. Yeah. Yeah. That, that would be, that would be cool. Yeah. Yeah. So it'd be better to do it in VR though to be honest, because you wouldn't have to wait for the 3D print. Right. So it could just put it back together, make a model of it, and then you could step into your VR construct, uh, a.k.a. Matrix, and view your site. View, view, your, your, view your pottery. That would yeah. be cool. So Future of archaeology right there. I we know. just made it. It's happening. Yeah. Oh, the other thing I was wondering, and maybe you learned this in your interview, but would this technique work with like projectile point identification? Exactly the question I asked him. Did you really? Said, <laughs> he said the one problem with projectile point identification, like true projectile point identification, is we don't have good enough ways to take photos in the field that show the texture and the flakes and everything about a projectile point. Yeah. Because it's not about just the outline. Mm -hmm. He said, if you took a Clovis and a Folsom and he mentioned one other point and you put them next to each other and you just had the outline, could you tell the difference between the three? And you really can't. You need the flaking pattern. You need the flaking pattern. Because the one like hallmark of a Clovis point is this huge fluted flake right down the center of it. And if you don't see that, it could easily be something else, mm-hmm. you know, cause those weren't the only points that were that shape. Right. So you need depth. You need to be able to see the, the flakes in a hmm. good way, in a way that the computer can actually measure because the computer is not just looking at it. When you say looking at it, I mean, what does that even mean? The computer doesn't look at anything. The computer measures things mm-hmm. and it takes these numbers and these positions and it, and it comes up with a model and it says, this is always this. I've yeah. learned that now. So it sounds like you would need a very controlled light, setting basically to bring out all of the different facets of the flakes in order to get the computer to understand what it's seen and well yeah we might be able to talk to him later because they're they're working on a photographic technique that'll work oh cool because you can do photogrammetry there's things you can do to bring out depth and shape Mm -hmm. and stuff like that yeah but they're not easy to use in the field right they're they're convoluted they take offline processing and it just doesn't work yeah you know what i told him i was like i'm sitting here with an iphone 12 pro max in my hand and this thing the front sensor on the on the front which mm-hmm. when i'm looking at my phone in vr is really weird because you can see it blinking but when i'm looking at it right now it's not blinking right because <laughs> that's just interesting that face recognition uh, camera that's on there basically uh-huh. that sensor it picks my face up in almost no light. Yeah. And it's just really good at mapping the textures of my face and then yeah. unlocking my phone. And I'm like, can we just put that on the back and then use that to to take pictures of other things in a mm-hmm. three-dimensional way and really yeah. just kind of map that picture? That's an interesting thought. Yeah. How, use that technology. Yeah. Well, and I think they're almost there because, and there might be actually be that sensor on the back of this camera because I mm-hmm. remember when this phone came out, they had really 
detailed augmented reality and things like that, that these things are capable of mm-hmm. now. And, uh, you really just need an app to utilize the hardware. Mm-hmm. So, cause Apple's not going to make that, Yeah. but if the hardware is there and it's accessible, somebody should make that yeah. so we could do those things. Yeah. That would so, be really cool. Cause that's the biggest thing with giving a big data set like this, you know, here in Nevada and in a lot of places in the West, when you do pedestrian survey, unlike shovel testing or digging mm-hmm. or excavation where you always collect, artifacts because you're taking them out of their primary context. Yeah. When we do pedestrian survey, we're not doing that. No. So we don't collect anything. Exactly. We just leave it on the ground. Yep. Yeah. So we have to take the data we're going to take when we see it. Yeah. Because nobody's going back there. Yep. For sure. So, at least not for 10 years. <laughs> That's why it like makes me crazy when I see really horrible pictures of diagnostic artifacts from the, from field cruise and I'm like oh god you guys like nobody's gonna see this again until another survey happens in 10 years or 20 years or whatever and it might be gone by then so anyway yes what's what's nice about digital cameras these days because back in the day they may not have known they were taking a crappy picture because they were processing film that's why there's no excuse for crappy pictures these days it really isn't so there's your PSA for the day take good field pictures that's right All right. Well, that's it. Again, if you want to check out our newsletter and see, honestly, if you listen to this podcast, some of the articles in our Monday newsletter are going to be from this show. Yeah. Right. So because some of our favorites are definitely going to be in there. I'm not putting more than like three or four articles in the newsletter. It's not going to really inundate you with that, but uh, definitely check it out. Go over to arcpodnet.com, scroll up the page a little bit or scroll down, whatever your preference is, however you look at it. And then you'll see a pop-up. Don't just X that out. Drop your email address in there and we'll show you some good things. And I'll try to let you guys know when our T Public store goes to 35% off too, because T Public puts our stuff on sale all the time. Yeah. So if you're wanting to buy some some swag, just hold on a minute. There'll be a 35% off sale before you know it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And Rachel's wearing an archaeology podcast network t-shirt right now. I sure am. It's quite soft and comfy. Nice. <laughs> all right. Thanks everybody. We'll see you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.arcpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. You can also find us on the Lyceum app, a podcast app just for educational podcasts. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Fro.